Next hour on most of these the same frequencies. Hello ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the program. Today we are going to talk about a rather serious topic, the future. This is Cracking the Code with Sadir Ispahani. In this episode, former Metric Stream CEO Shelly Archambault shares her life story and vision of the future. Learn how being bullied on the playground prepared Archambault for the business world. <sighs> Getting constantly tripped on the playground. I mean, I still have scars on my knees from all that. Got jumped and beat up by kids in my class. I mean, it's just awful. The fact that you can survive it teaches you you actually can survive it. Archambault reveals how being a high school club president makes her a successful CEO. Running a business is just like running a club, figuring out what the objective is, lining up people and skill sets and resources and things that you need to go get it done, laying it out, getting it done, and executing. But Archambault says the best leadership training she ever had was being a mom. Because that is all about how do you get everybody to work and play well together? How do you encourage people to actually get something done that you want done when you want it done? All the things that you're dealing with every day. Now your guide for cracking the code, Sudhir Ispahani. Shelly, welcome to the show, Cracking the Code. We've had a little privilege of getting to know each other, and you've got an incredible and inspiring life story, both on a personal and professional basis. So part of the show, as you know, is, is it's a series of podcasts that uh, are uh, my focus is to bring pioneering thought leaders who can talk about technology disruption, business models disruption, and the evolution of technology, and more importantly, life leadership lessons and uh, <laughs> what that really means in the future of where we're going and as we hand off to the next generation, some of us, you know, mm -hmm. what that could mean for them. So part of it is to cast your life story right. and to uh, call upon your journey mm -hmm. a little bit and uh, see how that's played out into the success that you've created for yourself and those around you. In, uh, in both the, uh, your personal and professional lives. So welcome to the show. Okay, thank you. Thank you. Great to be here. So today we have Shelley Archambault, a very famous and well-accomplished leader, pioneer in many ways in many areas. Shelley, let's start with a little bit about your childhood and your background. Okay. You know, uh, if you can just paint that story for us, how that evolved you into where you are today, taking us back to those early days of childhood. I'm the eldest of four. Yeah. My parents were crazy. They had four children within five years. So my brother, who's the youngest, is less than five years younger than I am. I can't even imagine having two kids myself three years apart, how you actually make that work. But they did. And so that, growing up in a family with kids and siblings so close together, it created an environment that was definitely one of very much loving, supportive, but definitely very competitive. Yeah. And uh, so that definitely shaped who I am. We moved around quite a bit when I was growing up. People ask me where I'm from, and I tell them, well, I'm just a nomad. <laughs> it's not an easy question to answer. I was born in Washington, D.C., yeah. but my family moved seven times by the time I got to high school. Yeah. So I'd been in seven different states. So I had to learn how to be adaptable and yeah. how, to, how to fit in and how to get myself settled and engaged and all of that. So all of those things helped me in terms of later, obviously later in life. And... My family is very close, and not just my immediate family, but our extended family. So family is an important element for us in terms of having that both connection, support, and you know, being there for each other. 
And that gives, I think, you, you, or at least gave me, a good sense of just confidence. I always knew no matter what happened, the family was there. Mm-hmm. So also, I mentioned competitive. We played a lot of games growing up. Mm-hmm. You know, this was before all of the you know, smartphones with all the apps and the games and all that kind of good stuff. And so we played board games and cards and outside games and what have you. But always, again, competitive. Everybody wanted to win, you know, be the best, all, all, the, all those things. But it was a good, you know, overall had lots of lots of different challenges at different times. You know, it wasn't an easy time of even American history. I went to elementary school in the 60s, which was the height of civil rights, uh, women's rights. You had the Vietnam War. You had, you know, Martin Luther King being assassinated, JFK. There was a lot happening right. in the environment, which made it a little tough because my family and moving us around, right. my parents were very focused on us being in good schools good public schools so they would stretch and save to be able to buy the house in the best school district which typically meant we were in the poorest house in the best school district and um, so that also meant that we ended up in very homogeneous environments so that combined with the backdrop of the the 60s that I just described was tough at times for a you know for a little young black girl in terms of coming forward but survived all that and I think those elements helped give me the, the resilience and the fortitude, right, you learn to be able to persevere on. So those are some of the things I talk about. So it's, it's, it's clear that, uh, you know, your success uh, is, is something you can look back on. But there must have been some early life lessons on fortitude, uh, resilience, tenacity, a drive to really uh, do what you now look, can look back on and say mm-hmm. it was a very successful personal professional career. Can you share some of those with me? Sure. So a couple. One, our parents never let us quit. If we made a commitment, we lived the quit it. So if you joined a team or a club or whatever it happened to be, you didn't have to do it forever, but you had to do it for that season, that year, that whatever that was, that commitment was. Right. And so that teaches you, you make a commitment and you keep a commitment. So you learn that piece there. I would also say that you talk about resilience. When I was going into the first grade, yeah. my family moved from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, uh, to a place called Granada Hills, California. Couldn't have been two different environments. Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, I was in a school where most people looked like I did. And I went to Granada Hills where nobody, nobody in the whole school in terms of look like me. And because it was just a bad time, you know, in in our history, and for as many people that were for civil rights and things like that, there were just as many detractors. So it didn't make it easy for a little girl, you know, showing up. So you talk about resilience, Ah, getting, you know, constantly tripped on the playground. I mean, I still have scars on my knees from from all that. You know, I got beat up by, jumped and beat up by kids in my class. I mean, it's just awful. So the fact that you can survive it Mm -hmm. teaches you that, you actually can survive it. And therefore, moving forward, I was a good student, so at least I got the good feedback and and stroking and support in terms of from teachers. And I was lucky enough to have, especially in third grade, a third grade teacher that really made a difference in, in my life. So coming through that taught me that I'm a survivor. And if I can survive, then I can survive anything. And I think that helps. Well, that seems like a lesson you learned early on. Yes, yes. And, uh, you know, no. Seems to have had an indelible imprint on your on who you are and how you crafted your 
yourself yeah, going I, forward? It, it did, Sudhir, because I learned early as a result of all that that you know the odds aren't really in my favor. Right. So I'm going to have to, if I, want, if I want something to happen, I can't assume that if I just do what everybody else does, mm-hmm. that it will happen for me. I have to figure out how I improve my odds. Right. And so I've lived my entire life uh, just about that. How do I improve my odds to get what I want? And that's personally and professionally. And that has driven how I've approached things. Mm -hmm. I'm very much a planner. I try to be strategic in my choices um, because it's all for a purpose. Right. Right. Share a little bit about that. I know when we last met, you talked a little bit about, you know, how that has bode very well for you to be a good planner in the way you've sort of executed on on your life plan mm-hmm. so to speak yeah if you if you don't mind if you can share a few nuggets of wisdom <laughs> you know for for the ones ahead of us uh, you know who who would look up to Shelley and say mm-hmm. look I'm a woman mm-hmm. I may be colored or otherwise doesn't mm-hmm. matter in the world we live in uh, I'm challenged mm-hmm. in my growth and uh, what can I learn from Shelley's life mm. Okay, well, a few things. One, planning does work. So when I say planning, what am I talking about? I'm talking about setting goals. Mm -hmm. And frankly, as far out as you can personally imagine, I'm a bit unusual, so I set goals decades out and then try to work towards it. Most don't, and you don't have to. But pick a time frame, pick a goal. And once Mm -hmm. you pick your goal, so for me, you know, in high school I decided I wanted to be a CEO. That doesn't happen often, but it did for me. So, what, what got you to that? You know what? It was a guidance oh. counselor. Mm-hmm. I was, yeah. I, again, fortuitous. I'm also a pretty good listener because you have to be. If you're concerned about your surroundings, yeah. you have to be observant mm-hmm. to your surroundings to understand what the dynamic really is. Yeah. And so I think that environment growing up also taught me how to really listen. Mm-hmm. So I had a guidance counselor. This is your junior year or sophomore year, getting ready to go in junior year. something in that. When you have a conversation about what do you want to do when you grow up. And so ask, what do you want to do when you grow up? And I said, I'm not sure. Right? Most people are. I said, I'm not sure. And she said, well, what do you like to do? And I said, I love running clubs. You know, what I found was every time I joined an organization, it didn't matter if it was the Girl Scouts or the French Club, National Honor Society, American Field Service, and I was in all of those, I just enjoyed being with people. But I would also find that eventually I ended up leading them. And I love that. Mm-hmm. It was, you know, we'd have something to do together. People they were all, you know, following and listening and we'd get stuff done. It was great. So that's what I told her. And she said, well, you know, running a business is just like running a club. Figuring out what the objective is, lining up people and skill sets and resources and things that you need to go get it done, laying it out, getting it done and executing. And I said, great, that's what I want to go do. And so that's how, and I just took it. I, it was funny. I didn't think about, okay, well, what else could I do? I just thought, that sounds perfect. Yeah. So that's what got me. So this was in, in high school? This was in high school. Yeah. So that's when you first sort of, for the lack of better terms, got thrust into becoming a leader and mm-hmm. you chose to become one, obviously. Yes. How did that feel as a leader? And what was your, your initial take of learnings being, uh, being your first leadership? Yeah, there? so a couple things. One, I think what I... What I really enjoyed about being a leader was the respect that comes when you do a good job. Again, think about the background and everything else. So that, that felt good. That was one. Two, I just like getting things done. 
And I found if I, I let it, we just seemed to be able to get things done faster. Because yeah. <laughs> right? Right. I had a lot to do. I was in a bunch of clubs. So if we were doing things and we wasted time, I didn't have a lot of time. I'm, yeah. I worked, I did clubs, I did school, I, did, I had no time. So that also you know, forced me to be efficient and all that helped. So you know, the clubs and things and learning, I would say the respect that it gave me, learning to be efficient, learning how to create an environment where people want to do what you need them to do versus just telling them what to do. Mm. Because when you're in an organization's volunteer, you know, a club or a group, people are in it for as long as they enjoy it. And they don't enjoy it. Not everybody had a mom like my mother. They just quit. So you had to create a different environment. It wasn't just say, go do this. It mm. was convincing them, making them feel that this was something they actually wanted to do. Mm. And that I took with me all the way through my, my career in terms of that lesson learned. That's fascinating to to hear you talk about it that that early in the game you you were insightful enough to pick up some of those learnings and of course that's carried you a long way all the way to your current journey. Mm-hmm. Uh, a couple of things, you know, just, just to switch a little bit. You've been in the world of technology mm-hmm. for a long time and you've seen various cycles of disruption, various cycles of innovation and uh, looking back and looking f- to the future, where do you see some of these unique challenges we have ahead of us on the ethics of technology and mm-hmm. some of the inno- innovative technologies coming out of uh, you know the world we live in? Mm-hmm. And uh, how do you see those being a benefit to, to humanity, to society, a disruption in a bad way to society? What's your views? Yeah. My views are every generation faces similar similar things. I do think that with the technology and the way it's going today, we're, we happen to be on a faster curve, yeah. but every generation faces this thing because there is a great value that comes from technology, yeah. but there's also a great cost that could come from technology. Absolutely. But that's true, frankly, whether it's technology, whether it is food, whether it's an experience. You know, I've always believed that everything has to be in balance. Sugar tastes great. But too much sugar, and if you're not doing anything else about it, that's a big problem. So it's, it's true no matter what aspect of life you think about. So when I think about it, it's always balance. Anytime something becomes too great yeah. of an, an overshadow or um, of overall influence, mm-hmm. I think that's a problem. And if it can't be self-regulated, then there has to be ways to understand how to bring it back in balance. Do you see some challenges ahead, not just for us, but for the generation ahead of us, the millennials, on how this balance could be created? Or Oh, I, I think the answer is absolutely there are challenges ahead. Gosh, when you think about the fact that I believe technology and the impact of technology is actually speeding up, and I think it's on a slope and we're actually accelerating faster, so it will be very, very difficult for laws and rules of order and practices, yeah. you know, whether they're written down, to keep up with actually what's possible. Yeah. We have trouble right now with yeah. that, but at least you can get it within a year or two. Right. Uh, I think it's going to be even harder as, yeah. we, as we go forward because of that speed. So yeah. that will be a big challenge. I think the, the next challenge will be the nature of work right. is going to just change dramatically. And how quickly society comes through that change. It always happens. But 
it's all tied to how quickly we can come through that that change right. will determine just how painful it is, frankly, in terms of for society at, at large. So I think there's some big challenges coming. Well, you you know, it's funny. You've been in the boardroom forever, <laughs> and uh, you've been high, had very high-profile positions as a senior executive and a CEO. Uh, you've seen this technology enablement disruption, and clearly it's disaggregated labor pools. Uber is a good example of that, which requires people to reinvent and retool themselves, mm-hmm. right? Where do you see some of these challenges for us as a as a society, as a generation, and what are some of the insights that you're gleaning from sitting in the boardroom, you know, where you really have access to seeing where the future of some of these industries are being created and recreated? Yeah. I mean, do you have any views on that? So, yes, and I think it's a, I think it's a couple, but one that I'll talk about is our society and the social structure and underpinnings right have been designed around big companies, right. whether it's healthcare, benefits, I mean, it's all around big companies. Yeah. And it hasn't been that way forever, but mm-hmm. it's been that way since about the 1940s, since started built, putting in all the different undercarriages of that, where there's the big company, and that's how we were going to deliver right. benefits and things to people. Well, the challenge is big companies have a very different role than they did before. It used to be big companies employed mm-hmm. almost all employees. But now it's not true. You know, before you had big companies and you had little entrepreneurs. Well, now you have a whole set of industries being created where the individual is the company. Yeah. I decide, am I going to go work for Upwork today or I'm going to do Uber tomorrow or I'm going to do Live Ops the next day or I'm going to do... There's so many different companies that I can work for, but it's me now that is the entity. Right. And we do not have a social structure and underpinning mm-hmm. to actually support an individual who truly is driving their career and their path and decisions. And that's part of what the challenge is right now. When you look at everything, healthcare, you name it. That's a fascinating insight, by the way. And I was just curious, I mean, what would be your words of wisdom to to then the generation ahead of us as they're living in this this change as you as yeah. you very well articulated? I think the millennials have got to get more engaged with public policy. If they wait you know, too long, they will find that their options for flexibility that they are striving for so much. I see so much more demand for individual flexibility yeah. in the millennial generation than I have in the generations that have come before. Yeah. But if they don't get engaged in public policy to actually be able to start to change what the center design point is, mm-hmm. that's going to end up being significantly more painful than it, than it should be. So my advice to them is get engaged in public policy mm-hmm. so that we can actually start to shift the paradigm that's mm-hmm. used today for how we support society. Fascinating. Really, thank you. Those, those insights are, are very valuable, I think, uh, as we uh, you know, think through the future. And, and those of us who have had, had that privilege of living the last 30 years of, of what has happened in the world of technology and how things have been created. Mm-hmm. Just switching around a little bit, coming back to your leadership style, you know, what would you say the one sentence is that would define you as a leader and what your leadership style is? I am an inspirational, collaborative leader. Mm, that sounds... Uh, like who you are from the little <laughs> down to know you. 
you know, inspiration is such an interesting word if you think about it. And I think I've had the privilege of getting to know folks like you, you know, and I think people who look up to leaders always are looking for something. Mm -hmm. How do you exude that inspiration in people? Do you have any thoughts on I that? Think, I think it comes down to being able to paint a picture, tell a story that helps people understand not what they need to do today, right. not what's happening today, right. but be able to actually connect the dots with where things are going, what needs to happen, where the opportunity is. It is very much providing that forward-looking view yeah. with serious dots. Because if you don't connect the dots, it's one thing to just say, oh, this is it, okay. But if I can't personally identify with that, if I don't see how I fit into that, yeah. if I don't understand the importance of the role I play yeah. and how that manifests itself, then it, it doesn't mean a whole lot to me. Mm -hmm. So you've got to be able to paint the forward picture. Yeah but connect the dots mm. so that people understand and can relate to what you're saying and then be able to share examples of why it's possible. I think there's a lot of millennial leaders who would love to, to learn more from folks like you who've been there on, on this whole subject of painting the picture and connecting the dots. Come back to as a woman. Mm -hmm. You've been very successful as a leader. There are a lot of women will get access not just to the show but through many other avenues that you get to do in your own world of speaking and writing and, and all of that to get to know you. What are the insights that you would give an inspiring woman leader of what your leadership journey has been all the way to where you've been mm -hmm. as a woman leader? Is mm -hmm. there something you could share with? Sure, that's a broad question. So let me let me peel back a couple things. So one I think, frankly, there's been no better time than today to be a female leader. Operating on a global stage, mm -hmm. operating with employees that are remote, which I don't care where you are, almost everyone now has remote employees, yeah. requires you to be able to be a good communicator, for people to be able to feel connected. It requires relationship, even more so than when mm -hmm. I can touch people. Well, studies have shown that those actually happen to be women's strengths. Mm -hmm. Creating relationship, fostering a true connection and one of trust. All of those things now being collaborative. Mm -hmm. Those, I think, now are actually becoming more and more valued. Yeah. And therefore, it plays right into women leaders' hands. So my, you know, my big advice is go for it. Mm -hmm. I think many times women, and frankly minorities actually underestimate not only their own capabilities but also the opportunities in front of them and my big advice is don't don't do that mm. don't do that there are more opportunities out here and you have more skills than you expect people ask me sometimes what you know what one role or, or one job has really set me up the best to be a, a senior leader right at a, at a CEO mm. and you know what I tell them being a mom and I've had tons of jobs right. being a mom because that is all about, all right, how do you get everybody to work and play well together? How do you encourage people to actually get something done that you want done when you want it done? All the things that you're dealing with every day, the multitasking, the 
being able to take resources and figure out how to share them appropriately, right? Across mm-hmm. me, all those things you do every day. Yeah. This, this isn't magic. Mm-hmm. It's just realizing that that's what you're doing right. and taking those same learnings yeah. and bringing them into the, the workplace. Right. A lot of people talk about, you know, I wear my business hat and I wear my home hat. And I'm like, yes, we have multiple hats that we wear, but you know what? They're all stacked. We wear them all at the same time. Right. Don't take one off to put the other one on because you're gonna leverage the same things you learn in one arena, frankly, back to the other. Setting expectations is a great example. We set expectations all the time at work, and we're typically very conscious about doing that. We almost never set expectations at home. And it's crazy. We need to set expectations at home too. That's part of why everybody feels so guilty. They're never quite doing enough, because you know what? Enough was never established. So isn't it better if you can sit down with your kids and say, you know I work and I travel. They know this, this is not a surprise. Mm -hmm. I'm very supportive of your basketball, right team, exactly. I'm gonna work hard to try to make five games this season because you know I'm in and out and the whole bit. Is five seem like a reasonable number? No mom, that's not enough. All right, fine, let's say it's seven. You pick a number, fine. Now you work like hell to make that number. And then if you agree on the number seven and you make eight, you're a champ. Instead of, I only made eight out of 14 games, and you feel guilty. Mm -hmm. So don't take off the hats. Just stack them and take what you've learned in one arena and bring it to another because I I believe in integrating life. That's one of the things that's worked for me. I I just integrate my life. Mm -hmm. So there is no fine line between personal and professional. It's all a series of gray and shadings and and the whole bit because I'm one person. So I don't know how to split myself in a whole lot of different ways. I mean, you started your career as a, as a leader and, and a woman at a time when, I mean, times are very different now. Uh, women are being heard, mm-hmm. but 25, 30 years ago. They weren't. Right. <laughs> so what were some of those challenges that you sort of hit early on, and how did you overcome them sitting around uh, all men leaders? Yeah, so I think the one that is consistently an issue is being heard. I still hear from women, and I'm sitting in a meeting, and I say something, and nobody listens to me. Somebody else says the same thing. Mm-hmm. Ten minutes later, and, oh, what a great idea. Didn't I just say that? Most women have experienced that multiple times. Right. Probably one of my biggest learnings was I was working as a, an assistant. Now, an assistant was not an administrative job. At IBM, you were given these interim assistant roles mm-hmm. with a senior executive, and it was really meant to help give you visibility for people to both see you, but for also for you to see and understand how things worked at a very at a higher level. So it's actually a very desirable thing to get. So I got this assistant role, and I was gonna be in it for like four weeks. Yeah. Back then, there was no email. Everything was voicemail. So my boss used his assistants to help him bring in two places at once. So if he was invited to two meetings, he went to one, I would go to the other, and then I'd leave him a voicemail with the key points. First week checkpoint. Shelly, lots of good feedback, which is great. He says, it's just one thing. I get a lot of voicemails. So it would really help me if you could just shorten yours out. Because what was I doing? I was basically replaying the entire meeting for him, right? So my voicemail was probably 15 minutes, who knows? But too long, got it. The next voicemail I left for him took me 20 minutes to record because I looked at my notes, I left the voicemail. I recorded and listened to it. Now I can do it better than that. Delete, do it again, delete, do it again. And I got to the point where it was super net and all the key points were there. It took practice. 
Now it didn't, not every time, but at least that first time so I could learn. Next checkpoint, Shelly. Great job. Now, what did I learn from that? What I learned from that is people are busy mm-hmm. when they're senior. Not that everybody's not busy, they are, but senior people tend to really protect their time. Yeah. So they also want input, much more net. Give the point up front. If you want to support the point, support it afterwards. Yeah. What happens a lot of times, and especially for women, is because we're into the relationship piece, mm-hmm. more so from a communication standpoint, I want you to understand why I feel the way I do. And in wanting to understand the why, in addition to the what, I use too many words. And what happens is we get tuned out, mm-hmm. especially if we explain why first and then make our point. They don't hear it. It's not so much they're ignoring, they just don't hear it. So we have to change how we communicate in male-dominated environments. Mm -hmm. And so that was definitely one of the things that I learned in that whole event with Ken Thornton was his name, um, with with that senior executive. Phenomenal. Obviously, I mean, you've been extremely successful successful being around uh, these global leaders, and I'm sure you've gleaned a lot of great insights from them, but vice versa. They would have learned just as much from you. What would you say were some of those key insights that you not just picked up from them, but where you know that an aspiring women leader needs to really, I mean, you talked about relationships Mm -hmm. and you know how that's such a key fabric of a woman and how it's driven Mm -hmm. in every communication and conversation you have. But what are one or two of those nuggets that you could offer up to an aspiring woman leader who says, look, stay the course, Mm -hmm. run with this thing, and there's going to be those valleys you're going to be sitting in where these male-dominated leaders are going to pull you down. What are some of those things that you could share? So one is get a cheerleader. Your career, heck, every week, you're going to have your highs and your lows. But there are going to be some really low lows because if you're not making mistakes, then frankly, you're not pushing yourself hard enough. So when you make them or when you stumble and you fall hard, you need somebody there to basically help you make sure you get up and that you get up quickly so that a lot of times it's not the mistake that causes the issue in terms of the career. It's how you deal with the mistake Mm -hmm. or how long it takes you to get your mojo back or whatever it happens to be. So I've been fortunate. My husband has been my cheerleader. Mm -hmm. But it doesn't have to be your husband. Friend, mother, sister, spouse, whatever. Find somebody that when you're feeling down and worthless and like, oh my goodness, right? I can't do anything right. Mm -hmm. They're there to tell you and remind you that you're actually pretty damn good. That helps a lot because a lot of us have self-doubt mm-hmm. and it takes some of us longer than others to get over it. Right. So get help to get over it. So that's one. Another would be remember that you are the only one who's optimizing for your career. Mm-hmm. Don't think that just because you are doing a good job and that you will feel like you're making the numbers and delivering the results and the whole bit that good things will just magically happen. Sometimes they do, but if you care about your personal trajectory, timing and and objectives of where you're trying to go, it's not all the time. Uh, So you have got to make sure that you're optimizing for yourself. Most companies, sometimes they'll optimize for you, Mm -hmm. as long as it fits into the optimization of the company. 
Mm-hmm. That's always first and foremost. So that's that's your role. Mm. That'd be second. Third, invest in yourself. And there's a lot of different ways to invest in yourself. Mm. I'll give you a great example. My daughter now mm. has three kids. She's working, career woman. Started work, had, she has a three-year-old and she had twins. Went back to work after three-year-old. After the twins, she went back to work two months later. So working. But the conversation she was having is was the different types of childcare and help and how is she going to save and how she make all these things, et cetera. And I said, my view and the way I treat it for myself, for the first four years that you have kids until the youngest is like four, all right, the dollars you are spending for help and support are an investment in you. That is not the time to optimize your bank account. I consider it an investment in you. Treat it that way. Don't be stressing out that, oh my gosh, I don't have my savings growing. And all this. You have time. You will make up for it later if you've done the right job of taking advantage of that extra time, help, and support during those years. Mm-hmm. So investing yourself can be childcare help. It can be going to a course. It can be participating in an organization, whatever it is. But you have to continually invest in yourself mm-hmm. as you're going through your career as well. Wonderful insights, you know, and uh, uh, I've had the privilege of also uh, being around wonderful women leaders in my own career. But uh, I can tell you one of the things that I would love your insight on is uh, is self-esteem. In the male-dominated leadership world, there's a lot of type A male leaders that you've come across in your uh, high profile yeah, role. Some women too, by the way. And women too. <laughs> yes. But most of the women, at least in my experience, uh, you know, and I see that with, to some extent with my own daughters, is, uh, you know, self-esteem seems to be a challenge. How do you overcome that? What are some of the tools you would say you learned early on to, to use in your own life uh, as a leader to, to sort of live above that belief that, you know, you're not as good as, as a guy sitting next to you? Mm-hmm. Uh, who you know you could do a better job in. Yeah, absolutely, the, the imposter syndrome. It's interesting, there's been some studies done that show that men and women actually have the same amount of self-esteem challenges. It's yeah. just it's how, we're, but it's just how we're conditioned. Men are conditioned not to show it. Mm. And women aren't necessarily conditioned not to show it. Mm. So therefore it becomes more and more real and can be more debilitating. So I say, okay, so how do you overcome it? My view is, you fake it till you make it. you just you know you have to you have to trust that people who are giving you an assignment a job a project a transfer whatever it happens to be are legitimate Mm -hmm. in why they're doing it it doesn't matter that you don't know everything yet they don't expect that you know everything yet Mm -hmm. but they do expect that you will get there and the question is just how long does it take? So it's not something you're born doing for sure. Not at all. But that's how I've done it. I just, it's like, okay, this is the job. I can be all insecure and uncomfortable. and I can talk to my husband about it. But when I walk out the door, put on the uniform, and I'm in the role. So that's, absolutely, absolutely. Great insight, by the way. It's a great, great learning from it. Clearly a successful leader. Uh, there are a lot of leadership do's and don'ts. What are some of your learnings from the don'ts of leadership? <laughs> <laughs> Try 
to make fewer decisions, not more. It's really easy to make all the decisions. But I believe that the primary role of a leader is to build more leaders. And if you're making all the decisions, then you have a whole team of people that aren't. And that means they're not developing. So try to make fewer decisions versus more. You know, people think, oh, I get to be the boss. I get to make all the decisions. <laughs> it's just the opposite. So that's, that's one. Another don't. Don't drink the Kool-Aid. Things are never as good as they appear, and they're never as bad as they appear. And a leader's role is to be that alternating force. So when things look, everybody's thinking, oh my gosh, the ship's going down, right? This is horrible whole bit. You've got to be the one that's now looking at things half full, bringing it up to balance. And everybody's thinking, oh, nothing could stop us. We've got the world by the tail. You've got to be the one saying, oh no, this could happen or that could happen. You know, bring, bring them down. Yeah. You want people to operate within a band that is reasonable so that you can get, they can feel comfortable and get yeah. the most output. You get the whole bit. And when you work on the extremes, high or low, people are actually typically not working at their best. Mm -hmm. So don't drink the Kool-Aid. You gotta be that counterbalance as you're going through. Fascinating. Another one. The higher you get in the company, the louder you get. So you have to be really aware. And it doesn't matter how softly you speak. People pay attention to everything about you because they're trying to determine how should I feel. Shelly walks through here and she looks kind of down. Uh-oh, what's happened? Is something going on? Shelly walks through here and she's all excited. Oh, something must be going great. If, if you let everything that's going on show, the whole company is going to be all over the place every day because they are trying to read you. So even though you may not say a word, but you are speaking very loudly. So you have to be very conscious. If anything, the higher you get, the softer you need to speak. It's just the opposite of, of what you would expect. Very, very uh, insightful hearing you, you uh, define some of these key leadership traits clearly. Uh, you know, all of us as leaders need to practice more, but foundational morals and values are at the core of good leadership. What would you be, what would you say some of those key foundational morals and values that you mm -hmm. tend to practice are as a natural uh, leader uh, in, in everything you do? Yeah. One is... <laughs> I call, I call it the Wall Street Journal law. And what I mean by that is if something that I said showed up as a quote in the Wall Street Journal, could I live with that? So it doesn't matter that it's just one-on-one -on -one in a room or in a Broadway, that's, that's my, I call it my Wall Street Journal. In the light of day, mm -hmm. right? Can I live with that? So that guides me. I believe what goes around comes around. The importance of how you, you treat people and how you want to be treated, I think that's very, very important. At the end of the day, everyone counts. Everyone counts. Mm. One of my favorite stories was a um, professor at a law school who they're now coming, they're taking ethics and I think it was an ethics and morals class or some, something like that. And there was only one question on the final exam. All right, they do all the cases, they do the whole bit. He had one question on the final exam. What's the name of the janitor of the building? Right? Most people have no idea. What the, what the, why does that even matter? His point was everybody matters. Mm. And your role, if you're going to be a good leader, is you need to know that. And I, I like that story. Mm. But everybody matters. Mm. So That's fascinating. And uh, you've been around uh, as a leader for a long time, learned a lot, and uh, 
clearly you've spent some time reading some books and what's a book that has influenced you significantly in your thinking as a leader to say yeah there are some things in there that I know I need to learn from and and inculcate back to the people around me <laughs> gosh thinking of one it's um Andy Grove is someone that I really respect and he wrote a number of books and I highly recommend them I think his style of communication, yes, exactly. But I, but I think his style of writing, yeah. you know, the messages that he was mm-hmm. trying to deliver are all things that we can all, all learn from. First of all, I can't thank you enough for sharing some incredible insights about your leadership uh, and your life journey itself. Uh, what an inspiring story you have, and the show would never do justice to actually <laughs> learning all about who you are as a person. But... As you look at your leadership journey and you're facing various seasons of, of and phases of it, uh, what would be the the um, epitaph that you would want to have around you that people when people think of you as a leader? I want people who I have worked with, engaged with, or frankly just had a any kind of meaningful interaction Mm -hmm. to feel that as the result of that interaction, engagement, whatever it happens to be, that their life is better. It's a very, very uh, important piece, I think, to make people feel comfortable. And I can tell you, the very short time I've gone to know you, I very much feel that way. Very privileged, uh, but also I always go away more energized and inspired by interacting with you. Chilly, well, I thank you very much for for coming on this show and, and sharing your uh, your life story and, and your insights. Absolutely. It was my pleasure. I enjoyed it. Thank you, Sadir. Final thoughts from your guide for cracking the code, Sudhir Ispahani. Sudhir, Shelley Arshambo was the first of these interviews that I heard. That's all it took for me to be sold on cracking the code as a podcast series. What I got from this woman resonated. First of all, she said that the best leadership training to make her successful was when she was in school as a young girl being bullied, being bullied on the playground. Alan, you're you know absolutely right. It was early on in the show. I did not have that conversation prior to us starting the recording with her. So it frankly surprised me but I was really delighted to hear her talk about how traumatic, adverse experience like that for a young person would translate into such incredible success that she actually took that as a learning tool and then she applied it and then she applied it all the way into a boardroom. It fits with the theme that we've seen in so many of these people who have cracked the code. Yeah. They started really cracking it when they were pretty young, 12, 13, 14. They pretty much had dialed into it, and were they were leaders in high school and onward. And so many of the lessons that they've applied successfully in the corporate world were things that they learned in middle school. No, you're, you're absolutely right. It's, here's the interesting thing. Uh, you know, uh, she's, she's an extremely successful leader, as we know. She talks about it in the show a little bit. But her ability to constantly practice those leadership principles that she learned, to your point, starting very early on in her teenage years, we 
We hear that from some of the other leaders, Mark Tim, Kevin Harrington, some of these other folks. And and she really shaped, it, a lot of those experiences shaped her goal-setting capability, making strategic choices, learning how to really treat others. You know, so she used it as a huge learning to become an extremely successful leader as a woman in a boardroom. There's another thing that I got from her that I've gotten from some of the others, and I've heard it so many times on this podcast series that I think I'm actually learning it, and that is the importance of clarity of communication. Yeah. For those who have heard Nick Siegel's podcast, they'll know that he talks about integrity of communication and keeping your word. Right. We hear from Shelley about clarity of communication. Make sure people understand what it is you're saying to them. Right, especially when you are a leader, you know, because that responsibility is much more Im- bigger and important to be an effective They're community. watching everything you do, the way you dress, exactly. uh, how you treat other people. Yeah. All that is communication. Yeah. It's very important, she says, to be clear in what you're communicating. She is the classic example of how you can use your free will from your early childhood days and make every opportunity a learning experience and then translate that into success through execution. 